Hey there, friends, family degenerates. Welcome to another episode of the Cage Wisdom Podcast, special solo edition, Just Me, Buck the MMA Nerd. Josh can't be here today. He is lost out in the Ozarks, searching for a limited edition special camo Bryce Mitchell rookie card said to be buried at the bottom of the old Spanish treasure cave. I imagine that it is camouflaged and is very hard to find, so you can reach out to him on Instagram at Caged Wisdom Podcast, Caged underscore Wisdom underscore Podcast, and wish him good luck. So, without any further ado, let's jump right into Cage Wisdom Podcast, episode number 14, UFC 288. The first item on our list today is a little bit of a check-in with a story that's been going on kind of behind the scenes. This is about Francis Ngannou looking for a new promotion after leaving the UFC after defeating Cyril Gaon last year. Uh, He was in contract negotiations with Dana White, and according to Dana, for whatever that's worth, he was asking for an exorbitant amount of money, and they were going to give him the best deal that anybody in the UFC has ever had, and blah, 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 blah. He's a spoiled brat. You can't work with him. Whatever. Um, Fact is, he is out of the UFC, and he's been looking for other promotions. Bellator has said that they aren't going to pay what he's asking for, and he has struggled to connect with boxing. He reached out to Bare Knuckle Fighting Championships, and they said they weren't going to be able to match what he was uh, asking for. And he has been in talks with Chatri Sichetong, who is the president of One Championship over in Singapore. Uh, and it just came out either yesterday or today, that's Monday the 1st of May, that... Uh, Chatri has withdrawn his initial offer, or has withdrawn his offer to Francis Ngannou uh, because of uh, non-financial differences, was the quote. So something in the negotiations came up. It wasn't strictly the money, but one championship is pulling back, and Ngannou still doesn't have a place to go. I suspect that the hitch that they couldn't get over was Ngannou's desire to box. He initially came to France from Cameroon with the plan to become a boxer and learned about MMA later, and he wants to go back to boxing. That's where the big money is uh, still for the best boxers in the world. They're making a lot more than UFC fighters. And it sounds to me like Chatri did not want to co-promote with a boxing promoter to license Francis out while he was under contract with them as well. Um, I don't know this to be true. This is just speculation on my part, but I think it's really important that we follow along with where Francis Ngannou is and what's going on um, with him because he took a big risk to leave the UFC and reject the deal that Dana was offering him and kind of stand up for himself. And if this kind of goes south for him, it's going to be really discouraging for a lot of other fighters to make a stand, kind of call Dana's bluff, and get out of the UFC and look for better contracts that can be found elsewhere. So if this works out for Francis and he can go um, to another promotion, my thoughts are right now that he is going to go with the PFL. Um, If that works out for him and he can get uh, a, a good career going and, and make the money that he wanted to make, Dana's going to lose a lot of bargaining power, and that's going to be better for the fighters, I believe. 
the other pieces of news that I wanted to go over before we formally got into the card today is kind of like a timeline of events that led up to UFC 288 in terms of the fight cancellations and late additions and late replacements and more injuries. Uh, this has been kind of a wild buildup. Uh, so just follow along with me here. The first uh, canceled fight was Charles Oliveira versus Benil Dariush. That was supposed to be the co-main event of this card. It was going to be sort of like a title eliminator sort of bout. Um, Dariush has been circling a title shot at 155 for a long time now, and Oliveira's beaten pretty much everybody else except Dariush. So once he, you know, one win here is, is going to determine who gets that title shot next. So that got canceled when Oliveira got an injury in a wrestling practice, I believe. So they moved it to UFC 289, which is just next month in Vancouver. So that's going to probably help that card out a lot. Could have been worse. So after that, Jonathan Pierce, who was fighting Bryce Mitchell, is out and then is replaced by Mavsar Evloyev. Evloyev is a Russian wrestler, and he is undefeated. I think he's 16-0 and right now. His last win was over Dan Ige. So good bounce back for... Bryce Mitchell, after losing to Ilya Tapuria and losing his first fight, now he's going to fight another undefeated grappler. Um, or he was, rather, until this week when uh, he was on Embedded, the first episode of the Embedded show that UFC does, and you can see his shoulder is, like, dyed purple, almost. Like, it looks like it was drawn or painted on um very very unusual i have no idea what it was but as soon as that episode comes out bryce mitchell forced to withdraw because of an injury so he's out too so now they have got him replaced with um a fighter off the contender series his name is diego lopez he fought uh, a couple of years ago and lost his fight by decision and so he's been fighting in LFA since then he is now coming in to fight Movsar Evloyev so neither of the original fighters uh, are remaining on this card and it's just a whole new fight taking its place um, when the main the co-main event got canceled they brought in Drew Dober versus Matt Frivola that was on the prelims they bumped it up to the main card but then they bumped it right back down when, kind of out of nowhere, Gilbert Burns and Bilal Muhammad get added as the new co-main event. So that's a ton of fun. That's a welterweight bout that is going to be uh, five rounds as a non-title fight co-main event um, at the request of Bilal Muhammad. So, assuming nothing else changes, the main card for UFC 288 now officially is Aljamain Sterling versus Henry Cejudo, Gilbert Burns versus Bilal Muhammad, Jessica Andrade versus Yan Nan, Mavsar Ivloyev versus Diego Lopez, and Crone Gracie versus Charles Jourdain. So that is everything I wanted to get out of the way before we jumped right into it. So nothing to do but to start from the bottom, work our way up. Let's talk about Crone Gracie and Charles Jourdain, the first fight on the main card. 
So I suspect that even if you are relatively new to the UFC or MMA, the name Gracie perked your ears a little bit. Uh, And if so, yes, you are correct. Crone Gracie is the son of Hicks and Gracie. Um, Hicks and Gracie was the first of the, like, era of Gracie fighters that, like, went out into the world to prove that Gracie Jiu-Jitsu was better than all the rest. He um, was the first fight in Pride. He had a rivalry with a Japanese catch wrestler whose name is escaping me right now. Their first matchup was a matter of pride, and that's how the organization in Japan got its name. Uh, his younger half-brother, Hoist Gracie, was selected for the first UFC event because of his smaller stature. Um, so the legend goes, they believed that because Hoist was so much smaller than Hickson, it would look even more impressive when he beat all these giants, and then they were right. Um, and that's kind of what started the whole UFC back in 93. So, Hicks and Gracie's son, Crone, has been competing in jiu-jitsu and has been, like, carrying the Gracie name for his whole life. And recently, in the last couple of years, in the last decade or so, has branched out into MMA. He did so at the suggestion of the Diaz brothers. Gracie trained um, at Caesar Gracie Jiu-Jitsu in California for a long time and... Uh, Nate Diaz was in his corner for his first fight in the UFC when he fought Alex Caceres. So talking about that matchup with Caceres, that lasted about a round, if I remember. Gracie has the typical kind of jujitsu struggles, I think, that like really strong jujitsu players seem to run into. Uh, Mackenzie Dern, Damian Maya, uh, where they are incredible submission threats on the ground, but because so much of jiu-jitsu takes place already on the ground, there isn't a lot of takedowns in a lot of really brilliant jiu-jitsu players' games, at least these kind of, like, classic gi jiu-jitsu players. So... Just kind of, you know, just like those other names I mentioned, Mackenzie Dern and Damien Maya, the biggest problem that they run into is they have this tremendous threat, but they can't utilize it. This is one of Josh's rules that I'm going to reference while he's not here, that the fighter who can dictate where the fight takes place has a significant advantage. And uh, Crone got one takedown against Caceres. It was all he needed. So that kind of worked out for him. But in his second fight, he fought Cub Swanson, and he wasn't able to get him down and wasn't able to hold him down. Uh, Cub also has a second-degree black belt in jiu-jitsu, so he's a uh, you know, very legitimate contender on the mats. And I think they actually met before in jiu-jitsu, so um, they had had some experience, and, and Swanson kind of knew what he was in for. But in that fight, when, when Gracie couldn't get him down to the ground – his whole game became, I need to initiate a clinch so I can just get a hold of this guy. And, you know, he has this wealth of grappling experience, but but striking is new, and moving in and closing distance and pursuing is a whole art form. And if you're not prepared for that, that becomes marching forward with your hands up, desperately trying to grab onto your opponent. Um, 
Cub did an incredible job sticking and moving, staying out of range, piecing him up, body shots, uh, you know, when you are just trying to march forward with your hands over your head, like uh, Crone was doing, your body is exposed, Cub was able to work the work the body all three rounds and really slow Gracie down, so... You know, I don't know how much he's improved either. His fight against Cub Swanson was in 2019, and he hasn't fought since. I believe he moved to Montana to open up a jiu-jitsu school, and he's been there um, for the entirety of the pandemic and and after. So you're in a new state. You're opening up a jiu-jitsu gym. You are trying to build relationships with you know, people in the jujitsu scene over there. I don't know how much time he's had to practice his striking. So I'm going to have to assume that he's going to use the same strategy here that he did against Cub. He's going to try and march Charles Jordan down, corner him against the cage, and get his hands on him early and drag him down to the mat and choke him out. Can he do it? Yeah, he totally can. Um, he really does have just a... a, a grappling game that's just miles above you know most of these other featherweights that he's going to fight but uh jordan does have a couple of weapons that i think are going to make it pretty difficult so you know um against other fighters like um lando venata and you know in his last couple to like nathaniel wood or shane burgos uh Jordan has these like really s- nice snappy front kicks, uh, punts him in the body, and he he alternates that with kicks up top to the head, and I like those for this fight because uh, I want him to work the body, I want him to slow Gracie down whenever he can, and you know those the front snap kicks are a little dangerous for him because uh, kicking right in your opponent's stomach is like the the best height that you want if you're going to try and catch a kick. Uh, but head kicks, you know, they seem a little bit more risky and they do. They are, you know, they are risky. They cost a lot of energy and they have to travel a long distance. They have to travel the longest distance of any kick from all the way on the floor, all the way up to their head. So there's a lot of time for an opponent to, you know, get behind their shoulder, get their, you know, their two layer defense, you know, blocking with their, the meat of their forearm, or the, you know, the meat of their tricep and their shoulder and then catching with their opposite hand as well. Um, but those kicks are hard to counter uh, for wrestlers. So a little bit safer to, you know, mix in these like maybe low leg kicks, kind of front snap kicks, and then altern- you know, like alternating with um, high kicks as he's circling out. I think that's going to deal some damage and frustrate Gracie, but Charles is going to have to be on his bike the whole time. So I I think he can do it, but it really is going to be how well he can manage his distance against Crone and, and how well he can put out offense from like a safe, stable position where he can defend takedowns when they happen. Um, To that end, I think Jordan is really good at, um, taking educated risks, um, like later in rounds, especially when he was fighting Julian Arosa, he, he will throw some safer kicks and safer strikes out at the beginning, um, which is smart, just kind of getting his reads, getting his feelings. And when, you know, he, 
encounters resistance and when he doesn't encounter resistance, um, you know, in the ways of pressure counters or uh, takedown attempts in, in response from his opponent, that's how he decides, you know, where he's going to focus more of his strikes. So if he's putting, you know, shots to the body in with his front snap kicks and they're getting snatched up and they're uh, getting him off balance, those are going to go, you know, down by the wayside. And when, uh, you know, he's getting these kicks through up top, I, those are going to become a little bit more frequent and he's going to start turning that up. So I think if this fight goes over two round, I mean, if it goes like a round and a half, I think Jordan is going to take it. I think if Gracie gets this, it's going to be by catching Charles cold um, and getting on him right away before he can, you know, he can establish his distance, establish his range and, and find those like good high percentage shots that he's going to use to piece Crone up over the distance. Um, so I think Crone Gracie by first round sub or Jordan in a decision. All right, next up on the list is <laughs> Movsar Evloev versus Diego Lopez. So I chuckled a little bit at that one um, only because this was the fight that changed over and over and over again. This was supposed to be uh, Bryce Mitchell versus Jonathan Pierce, and then Pierce dropped out. Evloev um, was the replacement. That looked like a really interesting fight. And then Mitchell dropped out uh, at the beginning of this week, and... Diego, uh, Diego Lopez is filling in. So I had to take a little crash course on Lopez. He is the, or was the champion at Lux Fight League in his last fight year. He defended his belt. Um, Lux Fight League is a promotion in Mexico. Um, if you have seen him at all listening to this podcast, you have probably, you probably saw him on the Contender Series um, Season 5. He went the distance, but did not. Didn't win. I think he lost a split decision, so he didn't get didn't get picked up by the UFC, and then he went back to the regional scene and and did fairly well, um, bouncing between uh, grappling tournaments and combat jujitsu, and then MMA fights. So um, let's just go right into him. Uh, combat jujitsu, lots of uh, grappling tournaments. That's. Uh, pretty reflective of his style. He is a jujitsu guy first. He's um, always attacking submissions. He's got really good jujitsu control. So a little bit different than wrestling control in, in that in that he's not like um, smashing an enormous amount of top pressure and and using you know the his his body weight in order to you know keep somebody pinned against the cage. He does a lot of back control and he transitions his control really well um in his last fight against oh gosh angel rodriguez you don't have to know that name that's okay so um lots of good jujitsu control um submission attempts and he is very responsible with them which i noticed um he doesn't really sell out on those submissions, he's got a good kind of like sense for when he's just going to be squeezing uselessly. So 
he is perfectly content to keep like good back control, get the body lock and and lock his opponent down and then alternate between strikes and submission attempts kind of back and forth. Um, and he never holds on to something longer than it's going to be beneficial for him. So pretty educated grappler. Um, that's what I, I like to see that. Is he going to be, you know, a big threat for Movsar Evloev? I don't suspect he will. Uh, Evloev is 16-0 right now. Um, he has had six fights in the UFC, I believe, and all of them have gone to decision, but they've all been pretty clear wins. Uh, I think he had a little bit of a tough time against uh, Hakeem Dawadu a couple of fights ago. Um, yeah, let's go about that one. Um, he has great control also, but this is more wrestling control. Um, he's got a lot of great top pressure, and his takedowns are, are incredible. Um he does two types of takedowns that I've seen. Uh, he likes it. He he does a Khabib style takedown, um, and by that I mean it's something that Khabib gets away with because of his wrestling uh, pedigree, where he will dive and Evloev does does this too. He'll dive um, at like your ankle and get like a low single where all he's got is his arms wrapped around your ankle and he's going to hold that sucker and never ever let it go. And from there, he will start the long process of standing his way up and wrestling all the way up until he's got your leg um, secured and he can run the pipe and, you know, dump you off a single leg or something like that. So he is willing to like, cross a huge distance to like you know fake with a double jab or, or establish the threat and then dive on these like low singles because he's confident in his ability to wrestle all the way back up and make that big dive you know worth his effort and worth his energy uh the other kind of takedowns that he does are just the most beautiful like reactive takedowns um if you are on the outside and you are trying to you know stay uh, uh, you know, stay dangerous from the outside as a striking threat, and then you try and like dart in and you know stick and move and get in and land a big shot. He is so fast at getting under your big charging shot and getting right on your hips and bringing you down to the mat. So, have I seen Lopez throw those kind of strikes a lot? Yes, I have. So that's gonna be where where this fight takes place. I think. Um, Ivoyev had doesn't have a lot of finishes. Uh, he did before coming into the UFC, but once he started fighting UFC caliber fighters, that that slowed and and he started to focus on just controlling his opponents. Um, I mean, uh, he was clearly trying to like finish all of these opponents, but um, getting a dominant decision has been his, you know, his mo in the last couple of years. Uh, is Lopez a, a UFC caliber fighter? Uh, the evidence would suggest not uh, because he couldn't make it in on the contender series, but he has some pretty decent power in his hands, and that power car- he carries carries it with him. So I could see this. Um, I could see Evloev controlling the first two rounds um, and Lopez using his jujitsu to you know, survive. I don't know if he's going to catch him in a slick submission. Um, he tries. He does have really good... Uh, submissions from his back and he's got a really good finishing instinct but I don't suspect that he is going to be 
super successful with his submissions. Uh, Evloev is very defensively sound, uh, especially on the ground. But um, where his defense starts to falter is in the later rounds. Um, uh, Movzar has the kind of wrestling that you can tell comes from years and years and years of wrestling. And it is so seamless. It's so instinctive. He does it um, like he's like he's done it forever. And his striking is good. It's fast. It's crisp. He's got good technique. But um, I think it's pretty clear that his striking was something that came later. And it isn't quite so ingrained in him as his wrestling is. So I think where, where that shows is in the third round... Evloev's defense, his striking defense, is uh, its the first thing that goes when he gets tired. Um, and he's got a, a pretty good gas tank on him, but wrestling's exhausting. Um, and if you are trying to pass and you're doing takedowns and you're moving all around, uh, that's, a, that's a tiring game to play. Uh, yeah, it's tiring to be on the bottom, but um, the, you know, wrestling offense isn't a cakewalk either. So... If this goes Lopez's way and we get a huge, like, very exciting upset, I think that happens by a TKO in the third round. Uh, Lopez's punches are – he doesn't throw himself off balance a ton, um, and I have seen him land some pretty heavy shots that look very easy coming from him. So there isn't, like, a huge physical commitment. Um, he doesn't – throw and carry his weight over his you know hips and have to catch himself uh he has nice crisp clean one twos and when those land they hurt pretty bad um and they've knocked quite a few opponents down so if if this goes his way i think it comes late um after weathering the storm early and he lands uh the best punch of his whole life um is it likely no i think evloyev's going to put on a pretty dominant and convincing performance, um, especially if he was training for Bryce Mitchell, who uh, is, I think, all the things that Diego Lopez is, but better. So if you're going to drop a couple of bucks on this one, you're probably not going to get an enormous return. Um, but this might be a fun one to drop, uh, you know, drop a couple bucks on the underdog and, and maybe you'll sneak out something good. All right, moving on to the next one. The third fight on the main card is a strawweight fight between Jessica Andrade and Yan Zhao Nan. This one is, it, I'm going to be honest with you, it's hard for me to be objective because I love Jessica Andrade. I love the monstrous hooks. I love the huge slams. I love the ground and pound. I, I love it all. Jessica Andrade is um, one of my favorites, um, and has been, uh, since her first title shot against Ioani and Jacek back in 20, I want to say 17, 16 or 17. Anyway, um, you know, the reasons I like her, uh, as I just listed, she has awesome athleticism and strength for fighting at 115 pounds. When she made her debut in the UFC, there was only a bantamweight division at 135. So she was fighting girls like Raquel Pennington, who I think has now fought up at featherweight. Um, 
and still was doing pretty well, uh, even though she was so tremendously undersized. And undersized is <laughs> kind of an understatement, even. She is five foot one for this division, and that is still pretty small. Yan Chao Nan is five five and is going to tower over her, but so is everybody else, and that hasn't really stopped her. So. What I'm expecting to see in this fight is Jan on the outside. She is a pretty talented outfighter. She uses her kicks like jabs. So really fast snapping front kicks that she can put to the body or the head. Um, side kicks as well if she needs to put a little bit more like stank on them. She does the those stomping kicks to the knees. That one I think is going to be really effective here. Um... You know, Jessica is is great at pursuing, but um, does sort of plod at times, kind of plods forward, and if she's not, you know, moving laterally and timing her entries well, she's going to get jammed up by these, like, low-line straight leg kicks. Uh, Robert Whitaker loves these kicks, um, used them against... Yuel Romero a ton in their second fight. He uses them against Marvin Vittori. So watch for those. The The danger with them is going to be that every time Jan kicks, she's going to be on one leg. So yes, that does seem pretty obvious, but if you are kicking, you are not moving away from her. So Je that that's kind of what Jessica is relying on. She's going to use her leg kicks to kind of slow your speed overall, trying to chop them down, um, reduce your lateral movement so you can't get away from the cage. Um, and if you are checking those kicks, when you are checking, you're also not moving. So that's the time that Andrade is going to try and close that distance, follow, you know, following those leg kicks uh, and get within striking range. Um, striking is primarily these big wild hooks. Sort of looks like... Um, Sort of looks like Vanderlei Silva back in Pride with these wild, um, heavy, full-body hooks that she throws all the way down from her hips. Uh, bad form, uh, some people would say, because when you're throwing from all the way down at your hips, you're leaving your head really exposed. Um, and that's exactly what happens. Andrade gets hit um, pretty regularly, but that's kind of a fair trade. Um, at 115 pounds, most girls aren't going to be able to do a ton of damage with a jab. There are, of course, exceptions, but um, arms are are already pretty light um, in comparison with legs. And if you only weigh 115 pounds or you know 120 something when you've rehydrated, there just isn't a ton of force that you're going to be able to put into a, a jab. And if Andrade knows these punches are coming and she can take them on the top of her forehead. Those just aren't going to slow her down too much. That was what Lauren Murphy was dealing with um, in Andrade's last win back um, in Brazil. I think that was UFC 282, I want to say. Um, Murphy was tagging her up. You know, she was running backwards the whole time, um, and she had to because even though she was putting hands on Andrade, um, she was just able to walk right through him, and her punches are just so much more effective um, than her opponents. And so she's willing to take one to give one. She's willing to take two to give one because 
those hooks just are they just land so much more damage so let's say they are separated yawn is um maintaining the distance by jabbing out with her her front snap kick um and stomping on the knee every time Andrade tries to come close uh one of those hits wrong skims off the side of her leg and Andrade is able to get inside and really start you know dirty boxing getting in in tight pressing yawn against the cage next is a clinch uh Yan Zhao Nan does have a very strong clinch game. Um, being 5'5 does mean that she is big for this weight class. So she's got some pretty decent strength, and she has some really good knees that she throws in the clinch. And that's going to be a really, really significant weapon. So I think the clinch is where we're going to see a lot of important exchanges happen. Uh, with Yan being four inches taller than Andrade, she's going to be able to throw those knees up the middle, and those are going to be a real threat for Andrade if she's got her head down and she's trying to to close the distance and she isn't taking everything very, very seriously. So knee, knees up the middle, especially if they're in a clinch, um, you know, driving them into the body as well, that's going to be a huge weapon for um, Yanjo Nan. On the flip side of that... If she is in kneeing distance, she is within grappling distance. Jessica Andrade, uh, with her lower center of gravity, is going to be able to get in and get under, um, you know, her opponent's hips and take them for a ride. She is her nickname is Bate Estaca. That is Portuguese for the pile driver. Um, if you remember how Jessica Andrade won the strawweight belt from Rose Namajunas, that makes perfect sense. She can close the distance, get your opponent against the cage, uh, get like a high crotch, like a Daniel Cormier style um, high crotch, and lifts her opponent straight up and dumps them on their head. And she's able to do this at flyweight. Um, she was able to do it to Caitlin Chikagian, who's pretty big, uh, even for that weight class. And she can absolutely do it at 115 pounds the 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 term is a high amplitude takedown um that's kind of like the ref uh or the judges rather uh term for a takedown that uh scores both in positional control and also scores as damage so going through the hierarchy just a brief aside refs are looking for damage or judges rather are looking for damage primarily um a grappling advantage second octagon control and um at, at the very bottom so with a big huge slam like Andrade likes to do that gets a lot of a lot of points very quickly um if you land one or two slams you almost definitely win a round um so that's where i think this is going to take a lot of uh take place in the against the cage it's going to be navig you know, Andrade navigating these big knees up the middle um, and elbows over the top and trying to get double underhooks, land her big heavy hooks to the body and and initiate a big slam, a big takedown, try and dominate from on top. That was that was the weakness in Yan Zhao Nam in her loss to Carla Esparza. She had gone on... I think I wrote it down here, a 12-fight win streak um, with a bunch of wins in the UFC before fighting uh, Esparza. 
And, you know, even though Esparza isn't the most, like, you know, thrilling strawweight or, you know, dynamic threat in the division, she is, like, a classic American wrestler, and she's got really, really good wrestling and is one of the better wrestlers in that division and and in, in female MMA or women's MMA in the UFC. So... Uh, she was able to get get Yan Jianan down to the ground, and I think won by TKO in the third round or something like that. She got her in a crucifix and was able to land elbows over and over again. Uh, Jianan didn't go out, but she was unable to intelligently defend herself, so the referee stopped the fight. Uh, a similar thing happened to Andrade, actually, uh, when she fought for the flyweight belt against Valentina Shevchenko, but... Uh, Shevchenko is Shevchenko, uh, and Yan Chonan is not. So, I do, you know, bias aside, and I am really trying to, to keep my bias down, um, I do think this is a really good matchup for Andrade. Um, when she does lose, it is from very strong, superior grapplers. Um, her most recent loss was to Aaron Blanchfield. Um, that was Blanchfield's coming out party. Um, snatched up a rear naked choke pretty quickly in, in um, the early rounds. Uh, and as I mentioned before, she lost to Shevchenko. Um, when she loses on the feet, it's been to Rose Namajunas and Ioana Jacek. And those are two of the best strikers in MMA, regardless of gender. Those two are legendary strikers um incredible output incredible distance management um stick and move they follow they have very very good fundamentals and very very creative striking on top of that both of them do in their own ways um and they were able to play the matador and stay on the outside of andraja and piece her up um over the distance um jung wei lee uh, was able to crack Andrade early, but I, I yeah, John on just doesn't have that kind of stopping power. Um, she doesn't have any stoppage wins in the UFC, um, and I and I would be very very surprised if uh, if she gets her first one against Andrade. So watch for uh, watch how Andrade closes the distance. Watch how uh, watch how John on uses her lead leg to you know. Uh, stop that um, stop that incoming pressure and watch how she uses her knees in the clinch uh, do, yeah that's I think going to be the biggest part of this and I don't necessarily think that Andrade is going to like instantly win if she gets her on the ground either um, even though Xiaonan was controlled by Esparza pretty handedly I thought that was going to be um, why Mackenzie Dern was going to beat her and um Zhao Nan, who trains at Team Alpha Male, which is uh, Uri Faber, Chad Mendez, Cody Garbrandt, uh, formerly TJ Dillashaw. Those are all very strong wrestlers. Um, uh, oh, um, Song Yadong, who just won last weekend against Ricky Simone. He also trains there. Uh, they are all very good wrestlers, and she went... Uh, and, and really refined her game, has a lot of good defensive grappling skills now. Uh, are they going to last forever? No. Are they going to be, you know, 
um, you know, I think it's probably going to be like Evoy of Striking that we just talked about earlier, where when she gets tired, that's going to be the sort of thing that isn't instinctual yet and is going to, um, it is going to fall away first. But, you know, that might, un- un- unless that happens, I think she's going to be safe and is going to be able to stay on her feet or get back to her feet if she needs to. Uh, I think this fight will go the distance, but I don't think Xiaonan is going to be able to put enough damage on Andrage, uh while staying away to to overcome you know those heavy heavy hands. So I think Andrage is a pretty safe bet for this one. I'd almost call that a lock. All right, moving on to the co-main event next. Gilbert Burns versus Bilal Muhammad. Uh, short notice, five-round co-main event. Um, I thought that was interesting. Uh, apparently, according to Bilal, that five-round status, um, that was his request, and he said he did that because he uh, spoke to Khabib. Uh, Khabib Nurmagomedov said that a five-round fight is going to fit his game plan better, and that's something that he should try and uh, you know try and establish over Burns. You know, he's he believes in his cardio. He's prepared for a five-round fight, um, so I think he's going to try and outlast Burns over the distance, which I think is pretty smart. Uh, Three-round fights are hard to win against Gilbert Burns. Um, I, and I think Muhammad needs all the help he can get. Um, first and foremost, Bilal is a wrestler. Uh, he has good top control. He has good ground and pound. He will shoot, and he will shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot. When he can't get a fight to the ground, he has been relying a little bit more on his hands, uh, and they have gotten better. Certainly, uh, in his last fight against Sean Brady, uh, he won via TKO. But Brady's grappling, you know, hasn't been or striking rather wasn't you know his his best suit anyway. So you know, I think this is going to be similar to uh, Kamaru Usman versus Colby Covington, where we get one of these fights where. Uh, two fighters whose primary strength is their grappling sort of cancels each other out a little bit. Uh, this happened actually with Gilbert Burns when he fought Hamza Chimaev. Uh, Chimaev, obviously, wrestling is his biggest strength, and he shot immediately on Burns, just like he shoots on everybody else, and realized pretty quickly that he was going to get more than he bargained for if he stayed on the ground with Burns for too long. Uh, Gilbert Burns, I think we talked about this last time he fought because he also fought on the same card as Jessica Andrade in Brazil, and then he fought on the last pay-per-view again uh, against Jorge Masvidal. So he has been staying very, very active, um, and that's been awesome. So is you know has he been preparing for five-round fights? No, but he's definitely stayed in shape um, and stayed active, so I like that. Um, yeah, so I, I think, yeah, this is going to go that same kind of way where I 
know that Burns has takedowns, but I don't think his takedowns are better than Bilal's takedown defense. So I am picturing a shot early from Burns, a shot early from Muhammad, um, but I don't think they're going to keep pursuing the wrestling over and over again for this whole fight. So uh, this, I think, is going to take place primarily on the feet. And and as and you know and yes, his hands have developed, um, but I don't think Bilal Muhammad has the striking um, that compares with Gilbert Burns. Burns has just power. He throws these big hooks. Uh, also, like Andrade, he likes these round looping punches. And normally, that's not ideal. You, um, they're great to mix in. They do have a little bit more torques. So you can add a little bit more, you know, pop. Um, to a hook than you can to like a jab or a straight um sometimes but a straight line is going to get to the target faster than a hook and Bilal does have really nice one twos um they're pretty textbook he does them exactly how you're supposed to and if Burns is only using those hooks then I think he might get jabbed up um for the first little bit of this fight uh what Bilal does on the feet is he kind of like circles from the outside um and you know uses his kicks and um a couple of jabs and stuff to try and like bait responses and bait counters um because he's uh primarily a wrestler he knows his opponents are going to kind of stay away um stay on the outside of him and he is counting on that and he's waiting for them to close that distance, and just like Evloyev, he is really, really good at these reactive double legs. So he will circle on the outside, pitter-pat, and wait for a committed forward movement, and then duck under and hit the hips and shoot into the center of the cage where his opponent doesn't have the cage to, to aid in him walking up. I don't know how often he's going to do that. Yes, um... If he lands that kind of takedown, Burns isn't going to have the cage that he can cage walk with. But before he was an MMA fighter, and even while, Gilbert Burns was an incredible uh, jiu-jitsu black belt. Um, he won he won ADCC um, and was winning gold in tournaments while he was actively competing in in the UFC. And that's an incredible feat to to be at the top level of two sports like that simultaneously rather than just one after another. Um, he was enough of a threat that Hamzat Shumayev decided that he would rather just stand and bang for three rounds um, and take more punishment than he's ever taken in his entire career um, rather than you know risk being uh, in Gilbert Burns's guard and getting caught in a lightning quick armbar or something like that. So. On the feet, I think is where this is gonna stay. Muhammad might do one of those like draw, you know, draw his opponent in, and then try and duck on that a reactive double. Uh, when when he gets his butt to the cage, he uses his lateral movement uh, and he fakes, you know, one way tries to go the other. Israel Adesanya does this very very well. Ma- uh, Muhammad does it too, not quite as well though. Uh, and I saw uh, him get lit up against Vicente Luque um, 
in their second fight, Luque throws very, very good hooks, and when Bilal was circling out to the side, if Luque is able to time him right, which he did a couple of times, uh, Bilal circles right into that hook, and he got he got rocked pretty, pretty hard. A um, couple of times, you know, I've seen Bilal get hit uh, with some thunderous shots and, and stay up and, and stay fighting, but he does get hit, um, and it changes it changes him pretty quickly too. Uh, he goes on the defense and you know engages in a clinch and does what he can to to hold you and stop you from hitting him because uh, you know he can take a tremendous shot, but he doesn't like it obviously. Um, but he doesn't handle them the best. Um, and I, I mentioned his fight against Luque in particular because. Uh, Vicente Luque trains at the same gym as Gilbert Burns. He trains with, uh, uh, trains at Sanford MMA with uh, Gilbert Burns and also Kamaru Usman. So, is uh, yes, Bilal's a great wrestler. Is he going to bring a level of wrestling that Gilbert isn't very familiar with? I don't think so. I, I th- yeah, I think this is going to go to decision. I don't see... Burns putting Bilal out, um, you know, maybe he rocks him pretty well and and decides that's his time to initiate a grappling exchange and, you know, gets on top of him or gets his back and, and gives him an RNC. Uh, I could see that happening, but I don't imagine uh, this is going to be like a, a quick TKO or something like that. I think this is going to be kind of like one of those slobber knockers that two grapplers have uh, over the distance. I am interested to see how Bilal's gamble goes uh, in terms of requesting this to be a five-round fight. So is he going to start to pull away? Sounds like that's what he's really counting on. So... You know, how the first round, how the second round goes is is going to be very, very telling. So we can see if he is able to, you know, maybe he's not dominating uh, in those first couple of rounds, but is he putting on an attritive performance is something that we should look for. So is he working the body? Is he fainting his takedowns and making Gilbert sprawl? Is he hanging on the back of his head in clinches? It, you know, is he doing all these tricks that that force your opponent to work harder than you are? So, if he starts with that early and is able to maintain that, even if he loses the first couple of rounds, I think that's very promising for him. Um, Burns is not an easy guy to do that to. Uh, he hits like a truck. He's very very fast. Um, his grappling is always a threat, uh, and he's just a dog. <laughs> We saw it in the the uh, the Usman fight. You know, he just went ham on him after landing that heavy shot uh, in the first round. Uh, we saw it in the uh, Chimaev fight. You know, and yes, those are both fights that he lost. But um, I mean, he is an absolute threat on the ground at at any moment. So I'm expecting this one to be a, a five round decision um, and a slobber knocker the whole way through pretty excited for it i am less confident in this one so i don't know if i would tell anybody to make a bet on this one uh, i'm flipping a coin and gonna say burns by decision 
That's my pick, and I'm sticking to it. All right, the time has come for the main event. We're finally here. Aljamain Sterling is defending the 135 strap against Henry Cejudo. Uh, This is a belt that Henry never lost. He won it against Marlon Moraes. It was a vacant belt after TJ Dillashaw tested positive for EPO and was stripped. And then uh, after uh, after winning it against Moraes in a really, really impressive fight, um, he defended it against Dominic Cruz uh, at the very beginning of the pandemic when the UFC finally came back. I believe it was UFC 249, the same card that Tony Ferguson and Justin Gaethje fought. So uh, after knocking out Dominic Cruz in the end of the second round, he retired, uh, and we all kind of had our suspicions that that wasn't going to be a retirement that lasts. You don't typically retire at 33 in in your physical prime and and stay gone for too long. Um, It's been a couple of years since, um, but Cejudo hasn't really, like, left the combat sports world. Uh, He has moved into a coaching position at Fight Ready uh, MMA, where he trains in Arizona, and they've got guys like, I think... Marvin Vittori has moved to fight ready. Um, Davidson Figueredo was there training for Brandon Moreno. Zhongwei Lee was there training for Rose Namajunas. There are lots of very high-level fighters moving through that gym, and they're there because of Henry Cejudo and his team. Um, he's very, very smart. He's incredibly strong. He's um, a phenomenal wrestler. Uh, he really is... Uh, he's improved by leaps and bounds. Um, he's on a six-fight win streak right now since uh, he had back-to-back losses against uh, Mighty Mouse for the belt where he lost uh, in the first round. It was a, a knee to the body that led to a TKO, and then he lost to Joseph Benavidez in his fight immediately after. Since then, he's started adopting this longer karate stance he's changed up his striking he's he's just added new pieces to his game every single time he comes out and and he's just looked phenomenal he really is um one of the greatest combat sports athletes out there right now uh the champion though it it didn't (laughs) he earned every single thing that he's gotten uh aljamain sterling is an incredible fighter he's strong he's fast he's uh, i mean he's so so fast the thing that aljamain sterling does so incredibly well is pursue the back and and maintain that control he can you know close the distance he's got big strong kicks he he doesn't punch a ton i've noticed from the outside when aljo's on the outside he he leads primarily with his kicks um, and uses those to, you know, slow his opponent down, stop their lateral movement, and then get in on their hips or s- initiate a clinch so he can do, you know, some funky trick uh, or funky trip rather, and get his opponent to the ground. And he just pounces on their back. Um, in the first fight against Piotr Jan, when he was um, the challenger, he went a little bit 
too hard, too fast, I think, in the first round. Uh, he he did really, really well, landed a ton of offense, um, and did a lot of good damage, won that round pretty handily, but I think the toll it took on his cardio really um, became apparent in the later rounds, and I don't think he was going to win that fight, and I don't think anybody thinks he was going to win that fight, unless Piotr Jan decides to do the most blatantly illegal knee I've ever seen uh, and just give Sterling the belt. And, and you know, so Sterling is champion. It's a really hard place to be where I, I don't think anybody else has ever won the belt by disqualification. So there was a lot of, uh, you know, there was a, a lot of talk about him being an illegitimate champion and not deserving the belt. Um, and he had to deal with that for a long, long time until he finally got to rematch Jan. Um, and 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 back to what I was saying earlier, his back control is what won him that fight. He uh, latches on and he is on you like a backpack and he doesn't go anywhere. Um, he wins most of his fights with his grappling. Um, almost all of his fights, I would say. He wins either via submission or... Uh, by decision because of his exceptional ground control. That's that's the part of this game that makes me nervous. Uh, this fight is um, he has not faced a wrestler of Cejudo's caliber, and that's because there just aren't a ton of wrestlers in the world of Cejudo's caliber. He is the only UFC fighter to win gold and be a champion in mixed martial arts. So he won back in, I want to say 2008. He was in Beijing. He became the youngest champion to win. Uh, I think he was 21 at the time. Uh, and, and has just, he hasn't lost a step in his wrestling. He is uh, always producing instructionals. He is on um, Fanatic Wrestling and, and BJJ Fanatics. Um, always putting out new instructionals. Always running camps. He's uh, in a coach's position um, at Fight Ready MMA. He is deeply, deeply ingrained in the wrestling game. And, and I think that's going to really inhibit Sterling's main form of, uh, form of offense. Like his, his, primary way to win is controlling on the back and I and I just don't know how easily he's going to be able to get that so what we're going to have to find out from Sterling is is he the kind of fighter whose striking is reliant on his threat as a grappler so if he is shooting and can't get Henry down or you know, he manages to get him down, but Cejudo scrambles up after defending, um, and that happens a couple of times. Uh, is his striking going to carry him through when he doesn't have that grappling to fall back on? I know Cejudo has heavy hands. Uh, Cejudo, I think, has eight TKO wins, and... Sterling only has two, and both of them came via ground and pound, and one of them was against TJ Dillashaw in his last fight back in October of last year, and, you know, that's another another fight in Aljo's 
you know, championship run with an asterisk on it. Uh, uh, TJ came back from suspension and um, came in and dislocated his shoulder in the first round. Uh, they put it back in after he managed to survive round one with only one arm. And then it came out pretty much immediately in the second round as well. Uh, and then after the fact, TJ reveals that his shoulder had dislocated as many as 20 times in that training camp alone. Um, and of course, you know, the more often it happens, the the easier it happens, you know, the easier it happens the next time. And that just compounds. And it got to the point where by the time TJ made it to made it to the title fight, his arm was barely hanging into his shoulder. So, you know, yeah, TKO win against TJ Dillashaw looks good on paper, but there's a pretty huge asterisk by that. So that leads me to believe that Henry Cejudo's got you know, a stronger striking game. He's got the wrestling that, you know, even if he's not going to use that offensively, he's got the wrestling to control the pace when he needs it and keep himself safe on the ground. If he finds himself there, um, you know, this is, this is my favorite of Josh's rules. I've already mentioned it once this, uh, episode, but I think Henry Cejudo will be able to decide where this fight takes place. Um, and I think he's going to decide to keep it standing as much as he can. Um, are there some, you know, vulnerabilities to his striking? Yes, of course. Uh, this new karate stance that he's been adopting, not new at this point, a couple of years, five years or something like that. Uh, being lower in a stance with a wider base does allow for a little bit more like short distance mobility, but when you are lower and your legs are wider, you you don't have the ability to check kicks as well or or pull your leg out of danger quite so fast. And um, Aljo likes his kicks, so when he's on the outside, I suspect that Sterling is going to start uh, piecing those legs up early and often. He's going to target them pretty frequently. That doesn't seem like something that's going to surprise Cejudo. I, I um, anticipate that he's got a plan for that as well. I'm I'm going to guess bait a couple of these low kicks in and you know throw one of your own. When you throw a leg kick, I don't know what it is, but if you get hit with a leg kick, you just want to hit them back with a leg kick. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if Cejudo lands an outside leg kick waits for Sterling to follow up and and throw the same strike and then Cejudo dives on that leg uh picks it up and you know charges in with an overhand right while Sterling is stuck on one leg um forcing uh, forcing Sterling onto the ground hanging on and making him get up over and over again uh you know as much of a, an incredible athlete as Sterling is that you know he he has tended to fade in the in the later rounds and i think that's something that Cejudo is going to be counting on uh, and he's going to work into his game as much as he can the other thing i want to watch out for is this happens not infrequently in Cejudo's fights where um when when he charges in and he's closing the distance fast and he throws these big overhand rights and he ducks his head down to to get it off the center line, 
um, he collides heads with his opponent not unfrequently. Um, infrequently? It happens a lot. <laughs> and uh, a couple of factors uh, uh, that, that make that so dangerous are uh, for a 135-pounder, uh, for a guy that wrestled as low as 122, uh, in the Olympics, uh, Henry Cejudo has a massive freaking melon. He's got a huge head, um, and that's why he's never been knocked out. <laughs> uh, he's got one TKO, but that was a body from body strikes. He's uh, super, super durable, um, and also because he's so much shorter, he's five foot four. Sterling is five seven. Um, when they clash heads, because he is lower, the top of his head with the huge solid piece of bone in his forehead is what tends to make contact with his opponent um and they take most of the the you know the brunt of that shot on their face or on their chin uh or you know on the side of their head uh lower down by their jaw and that's really really bad you know i mean that's a a really really bad trade uh to take a to take a, a big a head strike to the side of your head in order to like, you know, to try and hit him back with your, that's, that's just a, a situation that Henry Cejudo is going to win every single time. So, you know, it, it, <laughs> as unfortunate as it sounds, I wouldn't be surprised for yet another controversy in Aljamain Sterling's uh, championship career or championship run. Uh, if, you know, I'm going to say in the third or fourth round, uh, Aljo is trying to shoot, um, and he he's not setting up his takedown super well. Uh, he already kind of relies on, on his speed to get those takedowns rather than mixing them in with his striking or mixing them in combinations or things like that. Um, and if he gets a little lazy and tries to shoot a uh, you know a straight line shot onto Henry's lead leg, and Suhudo tries to you know meet him in the middle of that shot with an overhand right, and they accidentally air quotes clash heads, uh, that is going to be an exchange that Aljo will definitely get the worst of. Uh, and if, if he gets rocked pretty hard on that, and Suhudo manages to you know, capitalize and put him away, you know, that, uh, that could be a no contest. That could be a DQ. That could be a, you know, that could be so many things, but it would be very Aljamain Sterling to, to get knocked out with a, with a head strike or, or immediately be immediately following a head strike. So, uh, that sounds like an incredibly unlikely scenario, but, I believe <laughs> I believe that that's how this this main event is going to end. So, uh, put your money down for Henry Cejudo to win via TKO in the fourth round via he- headbutt, basically. Um, I am really excited for this fight. Uh, I know I'm sort of making a joke about it, but both of these fighters are incredibly talented. Um, excellent grappling between the two of them. I think just like the co-main event. Uh, this is going to be one of those fights that even though they're both phenomenal grapplers, it's going to take place primarily on the feet. Um, and, and that's just a, that's just a realm. I see Cejudo having a little bit of an edge in, um, 
Plus, of course, he's going to land uh, a sneaky headbutt or two, and that's going to give him a little bit of a benefit as well. So, and new. Great job for Cejudo, I suspect. Um, and then I think he's going to, uh, if everything goes according to his plan, he's going to move on up to 145 immediately after and fight the winner of Alexander Volkanovsky versus Yair Rodriguez. And he's going to try and shoot to be the first three division UFC champion. And golly, if anyone was going to do it, it was going to be him. All right. That's, uh, everything for this card. This was, uh, in my head, I was going to have this be a little bit of a shorter episode, but I really like a lot of these fights and, and it just kind of turned into me rambling. Josh isn't here to wrangle me in. So, uh, I really enjoyed this solo episode of the Cage Wisdom Podcast. I hope you did too. Uh, catch us next week when we're going to, or next uh, month, we're going to be looking at UFC 289. That's going to be Amanda Nunes versus Irina Eldana and the return of Charles Oliveira and Benil Dariush. So looking forward to that one as well down the pipe. Thank you, everybody. I will see you next month.